0: to Design Conscious, a podcast exploring diversity and leadership in environmental sustainability in the built environment. My name is Sarah Lawler. I am a Sydney-based architect, and through this series, I speak to sustainability leaders working across a variety of different organisations related to the built environment, including design, construction, research and investment, with an aim to learn about the impact of sustainability leadership. This podcast is supported by the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship, awarded by NARWIC, the National Association of Women in Construction, which has facilitated this research into gender equity and diversity in sustainability leadership. Today I'm speaking to Laura Hamilton-O'Hara, CEO of the Living Future Institute Australia. Laura is a social ecologist, educator and community builder. She has worked across NGOs, government and corporates spanning impact assessment, conservation, leadership and sustainability, including five years at Taronga Zoo and three at the Centre for Sustainability Leadership. A career move to the built environment 18 months ago allowed Laura to apply her skills in an area of high impact while continuing to engage with an empowered community. In our conversation today, Laura shares some thought-provoking reflections on making a conscious choice to lead with kindness. We talk about the impact and motivations of millennials in leadership and creating ripples of change toward a living future. Hi, Laura, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, Sarah, so lovely to be here. I'm looking for a tough chat. So, Laura, you are the first CEO of the Living Future Institute of Australia, a role you began in April 2019. I thought I would start our conversation today by asking you about your career journey so far. I'm interested in how you started out in sustainability and your path leading up to your current leadership role. Mm, Sure.
1: I think like most career stories they only sort of make sense in reverse and as I was going through it it felt very much like a squiggle so what I'm about to tell you makes sense now but at the time I was like whoa am I you know going from role to role and how are these all connected and I guess the connection is is me and they're the things that I care about so I was born in South Africa and um I grew up uh, in the context of the changeover from apartheid to a democratic country. And I've been passionate about animals, really, since I saw gorillas in the mist as probably like an eight-year-old and cried my eyes out because um, humans can be both wonderful and um, not so wonderful. And I was quite determined to be a vet for, for a number of years quickly realized that actually um, it has a lot to do with blood and I'm, I'm not great with blood. So decided VET was not going to be the way forward, um, but definitely something in conservation. So I volunteered at um, Johannesburg Zoo for a number of years and uh, initially wanted to do a, a law degree so I could do environmental law, um, but ended up doing a commerce degree because it just felt like a, a really great sort of general step. And I then went on to work in HIV AIDS impact and assessment. So really looking at um, what, does, what does it mean in terms of a community um, when HIV AIDS is really prevalent there. So in South Africa, HIV AIDS is a really significant issue. About 25% of the population are HIV positive. And so we're looking at what does that mean in terms of an impact on organizations and society. So really worked on that kind of human level and in the social justice health um, perspective. And then when I moved to Australia um, in 2000, oh gosh, when was it? 2008, I think, at the end of 2008. So I've been here almost 12 years. Um, HIV AIDS was just not as big an issue as it is in South Africa, um, thankfully. So I try to think about sort of what what are the, what are my actual skills and it, and it's around uh, learning and teaching and facilitating as well as conservation so the obvious choice to go to was strong as you so I um, I applied for a job there and was um, was lucky enough to work there for a number of years in quite a few different roles and it's an extraordinary organization um, really thinking about what does you know conservation look like and how do we create magical moments between people and animals um, to, to inspire them to be conservationists for life, essentially. And some of my roles um, consisted of things like the community conservation manager for a few months, which looked at how do you um, facilitate or um, catalyse behaviour change that is um, positive towards sort of conservation issues, um, just by people visiting the zoo. And I also um, was part of the Tonga Green Group, which looked at sustainability in, in the zoo as a whole. And it became more and more apparent to me um, that it's all very well looking at conservation or, you know, saving a particular species. But unless you look at the entire context of what's happening around that species, what are, what's the, you know, populations like mirrored or the conditions that people are, are living in, what's the sort of systemic issues that are going on, you, you can't save a rhino by just trying to save a rhino. You have to look at the entire picture. And so that, that's what really got me hooked into sustainability. And I wanted to really develop that, and uh, went on to do a fellowship at the Centre for Sustainability Leadership in two thousand and thirteen. And I think from from there, that's when sort of things blew up for me in a in a really positive way. Uh, one of the things about the, the CSL is what we call it. So I'll probably refer to it um, a few times in this because it's it's definitely been quite impactful in my life. Is um, you you spend time with twenty five. Incredible individuals from all different kinds of backgrounds and contexts and, and skills, but you all have the same sort of value set. So there's this common understanding and connection. And while you spend eight months of quite intense time together, it's the time afterwards that's pretty amazing. You've got this network of people that you care about and you've shared massive highs and lows with, and um, that are now working in organizations all over. Um, Australia that you can really tap into and, and um, have this really lovely connection with. So that for me um, really catalyzed my sustainability sort of leadership piece. After Straight after that, I did my master's in social ecology. So one of the things we joked about at CSL is basically six months later, everybody like quits their job, goes and studies, travels, does some big thing. Um, and so for me, it was um, a bit of both. I did my master's in social ecology, which is basically the messy area between environment, culture, the economy and society and what are the hard and soft systems that exist there and, and how does that enable us to do great things and what barriers does it put in, in front of us? Um, and I did that actually while I was traveling around Australia with my now husband and um, we took a, a year off to go and have a little bit of a wonder around our um, adopted country, I suppose. So uh, did both of those things, came back and then ended up facilitating CSL for two years and working with a number of change makers myself, which was pretty incredible. Um, I also worked at Macquarie Uni for a little while, looking at um, sustainability within the broader sort of corporate ecosystem around that university and how could we, you know, how do how do we partner up well um, to create change? And then this role came up um, in April, of, when would it have been Abu about February last year? And it was right at that time the university was restructuring, and I was sort of starting to have a look around and reached out to um, a couple of people who I would consider, you know, mentors or friends, and a number of them um, responded with, "Have you seen this job?" Um, which I probably would never have put my hand up for, except for a number of really trusted people who know what I'm capable of, suggested that I that I do it. So I put my put my hat in the ring, so to speak, and. Um, yeah, here here I am, essentially. Wow, that is such a interesting and
0: varied <laughs> career so far. So as you said, you've spent much of your youth in South Africa and you've said that through this upbringing, um, you developed an affinity and profound care for land and animals, Mm -hmm. which is also evident in the time that you spent at Taronga Zoo. I'm wondering how you found the transition into this role um, into the built environment and what are the similarities with your previous history in conservation and social ecology?
1: I think on reflection, all of my roles have been how do you make the most impact with the skills and time that you have? And so my step into facilitating um, CSL was about how do I foster 25 change makers to step up and do something extraordinary themselves and whatever that looks like. And so that was scaling my impact a little bit more. And this role is no different. Um, the built environment is responsible for you know, 40% of carbon emissions globally and in my role i'm lucky enough to think about buildings in a slightly different way which is what if every single thing that we put into a building and every single hand that touched it what if we were doing the absolute best we could with all of those elements um you know what a profound amount of change could happen if you if you thought about each one of those things and and how we could um do good instead of less bad and that profoundly impacts conservation because the wood comes from somewhere. Some animals live there. Some people live around there. And so how do we make their lives better um, by thinking about really, really carefully where do we source things from? How do the people who work there, what what kind of living conditions or wages or things like gender equity, for example, what kind of things can we consider to make sure that we're doing good at every single step of the way? And so for me, it might seem like you know, from the outside, it might seem like the built environment, so really kind of step to the side. But to me, it's about leveraging impact. And uh, it, it was an opportunity to step into a role where I could do more with the skills that I have. Um, and, and that was, I guess, a no brainer for me in terms of why I took this role.
0: Yeah, it sounds like your previous experience has actually brought a much more holistic perspective um, to this role, and especially an understanding of the full depth of the supply chain and its impact environmentally. Um, you hold a senior leadership role now in the built environment industry and have been active in fostering leadership through a number of your roles, as you've mentioned. What does it mean for you to be a sustainability leader and how are you, you using your agency to advocate for change?
1: So leadership for me is very much action oriented rather than position oriented. So yeah, I happen to hold a CEO title, which I'm only really just becoming comfortable saying it's kind of a bit weird, but uh, it, it is very much about what you do rather than what position you're in. And sure, the position gives you extra leverage and agency without a doubt. But anyone can be a leader and I, I firmly believe that and that's certainly where I've come to from a CSL perspective, especially. I think my perspective has always been leadership is about being of service. And to me, that looks like kindness and um, caring about every sort of element. And that's that's everything from your staff to your partners to, you know, somebody who's you know, made a wooden piece of furniture somewhere else in the world or a brick And if you start from that place, um, I think think that profoundly transforms the way you behave in the world. I'm not saying that that's an easy path to take. It certainly isn't because it doesn't look like leadership to a lot of people. And it's very easy to to want to step into what is perceived as a leadership kind of position or stance. And so sometimes I do find it quite difficult to, um, to really hold that Kind of kindness and um, gentleness, um, which is is very much who, who I am and who I want to be as a leader. But it, it, it is a bit of a challenge. And I think the, the other thing that I found really um, interesting in this particular role is I, I've obviously taught leadership and facilitated leadership practices and theory for a number of years and, you know, know that inside out. And one of the things that I found quite astonishing, even though theoretically I should have known it, is there's a massive rub between theory and practice. And it's all very well knowing, you know, all the frameworks and, what, you know, ways of being. And, but then when it comes to it in the moment, there's all kinds of messiness around how, what are your emotions feeling like, who else is in the room, what are the power structures that are going on that completely um, change and mix up that dynamic. And, and so holding on to, you know, who you want to be as a leader And and acting like that in every single moment, not just sort of professing it, is it takes up much more energy than I expected. I thought it would just sort of come naturally and and it didn't. Um, when When I have sort of gotten through a day or made a decision exactly aligned with who I want to be as a leader, it feels so solid and grounding. Uh, but, you know, that's, it's impossible to just do everything perfectly. And so there's some days where you kind of try and step into that dominant image of what a leader looks like. And afterwards, I'm just like, why? Why did they do that? And I think there's that real tussle between um, you know, the, the, the way the world portrays leadership and rewards leadership and who you are as a leader. And I think it's a constant um, choice in every single moment to do it. The way that you are rather than the way the world um expects um so that's been a very interesting um thing that i did, I did not expect at all that i'd find such attention there it's actually giving me goosebumps
0: that is <laughs> um valuable reflection on leadership and um yeah really thought-provoking actually You've said that you have a passion for developing and facilitating what you call millennial leadership and I'm really keen to hear more about what you <laughs> perceive as the differences of this leadership style and whether you think that over the next few years as millennials transition into leadership roles will this have an impact on environmental action.
1: So I'm a millennial I just I just scrape into it by sort of two years I think and like pretty much every self respected millennial, you know, what I want to do is save the world. And that's sort of the messaging that we've been told. And I think when I was quite sort of early on in my career, I was probably sort of 27 or 26. I kept hearing this, um, these stories of how disengaged millennials are and they don't care about anything but themselves. And that wasn't my experience of myself nor the people that were around me. So, I felt um, a responsibility to kind of push back on that and also think about, you know, how do, how do you foster the skills that millennials, you know, naturally bring? And, it, you know, it's, it's almost hard to, um, sure, you can define a millennial by, you know, dates and things like that. But I think it was more that up and coming generation that I felt very much a part of. How do you foster the skills that they naturally bring in order to help them to step up into not necessarily even leadership roles per se, but acting as a leader and taking action as a leader and so i think the the things that i um ended up being really passionate about were you know we've heard so much now about millennials being purpose driven and wanting you know wanting to work for things that they care about and um, there was a lot of stories initially around how selfish that was and like how can you how can you just you know want to do do good in your work like what kind of expectation is that but I think that's changed. Um, you know, this is seven years later from when we started that project. And I think um, there's a normalization of, of of course, you should care about your role and want to do good in your role. That's not an unreasonable expectation at all. And in fact, there's loads of evidence now that if you do, you, you know, you work harder, you put in, you're more engaged, you put in more effort. And there's a lot of benefits from being engaged and um, caring about your role, which is completely obvious that that would be the case, but sort of seven years ago, that was that was certainly not um, not what was kind of being sprouted. And so, what we were thinking about in terms of building that leadership style is being able to articulate like what it is that you care about and how you want to make impact in the world, rather than um, sort of I guess just caring about it and using you know only, only tools like social media or making it part of your image, but actually doing something about it, you, like taking action. That's the key piece. It's all very well caring about something, but how do you take the next step and take action um, and do something about the things that you care about? And that was um, that was something that was very much sort of close to, to my heart. And, I mean, millennials are in leadership positions all over the world right now. And I think, you, you know, if you think about the oldest millennial is like in their late 30s. Um, and the youngest ones are in their early 20s. So that's a huge span of people to be talking about. And, you know, even the ones in their early 20s or late teens are taking incredible acts of leadership who you just have to look at the, you know, the climate strikes um, as an example of that. So, you know, anyone along that food chain <laughs> essentially can, can um, or generation can take uh, leadership roles. But I think the thing that we are going to start seeing, and I think that's already happening, to be honest, is quite massive changes in how the world um, should work. I mean, this year, this year, COVID has obviously been a huge catalyzer as it is. Um, but, but, you know, a lot of organisations are in the hands of millennials now as we try to rebuild um, or build you know, forward what, what could the world look like. Um, so I'm really excited to be part of that group of, of leaders reimagining what's possible for us rather than trying to get back to normal.
0: I'd like to talk now about your experience in relation to female representation and diversity in leadership. From my NAWIC International Women's Day research that I'm currently undertaking, it appears that women are well represented in the sustainability industry. Mm -hmm. As a female leader, are there particular opportunities or challenges in your career that you have felt to be particularly significant in your leadership journey?
1: So, I, I would agree with you. Sustainability has got loads of women in it, which is um, which is great. Uh, we I was thinking back to CSL. Like there were some years where um, it was predominantly women with a handful of men um, in the room. Pros and cons to that, I would have loved to have actually really seen more of a sort of gender balance there, um, just in terms of, I think the danger of having one gender overrepresented in any field is that it becomes a gendered field um, and that I think is inherently problematic. Um, it would have been it would have been better if it was more even um, because for some things that have been you know uh, historically a gendered field, things like nursing and teaching for example, we know they get paid less. <laughs> we know they're not as respected and so the risk of sustainability becoming gendered like that is inherent in, in those kind of things. Um, and also I would say as you kind of climb up the sustainability ladder it's still heavily dominated by males um, and you can go to a sort of a sustainability award ceremony and you can just have a look at you know who's winning awards and, and often it's you know really still heavily weighted towards men so there's something weird happening where you know the majority of it is women but still the, the people that we um, really hold on a pedestal quite often are men and um, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what that is, but but I do think one of the things are is related to that that um, that balance of women and men in the big in the beginning. Um, what is exceptional is is kind of often seen as the thing that's you know not represented as much, and, and for sustainability that is that feels like a very male dominated um, space. But I, I think the more equal it can be, it's beneficial for all of us that sustainability becomes a more sort of gender equal space rather than just being female represented. Um, and that, that will also help um, it being taken more seriously, being embedded more into business and serious business practices that, that men, that are often men spaces. Um, and I, and I, I think that would really sort of help push it along as well.
0: I think you've actually just summarised my entire um, yeah. survey that I've just completed. <laughs> That is exactly my findings, that it seems to be a um, female-dominated industry but um, men are still more heavily represented in leadership roles Mm -hmm. um, and that there are these perceptions of it being a gendered profession um, and somehow a soft profession as well and which somehow reduces its impact or or value. So, um, yeah, that was actually a perfect summary. (laughs) Um, Looking at leadership more broadly, how would you to characterise sustainability and environmental leadership in the construction industry? I'm really interested in your perspective. Um, how are we tracking and where can we improve? Mm-hmm.
1: I think the leading edge of the construction industry is doing an incredible job, actually. Um, it's really innovative. They're doing quite exciting projects. Uh, their teams are collaborative and working incredibly well across sector. Um, And I think they're being ambitious, which is lovely, and really showing what the potential and possibility is. Um, Sustainability has had such a bad rap, I think, for many years, and it's it's often been about what you can't have. But I think some of the um, really leading buildings um, are showing you that sustainability is not only possible, but it's actually desirable as well. And so that feels really exciting. I'd say where we could potentially do better is embedding it across the sector. So, uh, often, you know, organisations might be doing a, a project or a really visible project that's very sustainability-oriented and, and showing that leadership edge, but some of their other projects might not be as well. So, it's fantastic doing the Gold Star project, but what we'd love to see is every project having sustainability deeply embedded in um, in the entire plan rather than just, the, you know, the headline ones. Um, so, yeah, really being consistent in that sustainability um, messaging. Mm. Mm.
0: The Living Future Institute has built a reput- reputation for what it has described as disruptive thinking and cross-industry collaboration in the built environment. At the Living Future Institute, um, you bring together a range of collaborators, including designers, clients, contractors. I'm interested in your perspective on the role of each organisational body and what they, what their role is in affecting environmental change in the construction industry?
1: I think that every single person, no matter what job they have, makes an impact in the world. And in the way that they perform their roles or, or just the way that they are, you know, as a person in the world, um, you can't avoid making an impact. The choice that you have is whether that impact is a positive one or a negative one. And... I think one of the most exciting things about sustainability is it's it's something that it can be embedded in every single role. Um, so whether you're a, a purchasing, you know, head of purchasing or a purchasing officer, what you what you buy profoundly impacts sustainability, um, and the, you know, the people who make it, what it's made of, where it comes from. Um, if you're in HR, you know, recruitment, who you recruit, what wage you recruit at, how transparent you are in recruitment. That sustainability as well um, and those two, two roles are vastly different but um, they're an example that pretty much every single person within an organization no matter what you're doing can think about sustainability when I um, when I was working at Macquarie University I was doing quite a lot of sort of lecturing to students and I'd always bring up the sustainable development goals and quite often it would be a surprise at you know what what is sustainability there's this sort of, I guess, idea of it being very much around environment. It's often sort of shifted aside to sort of tree-hugging green individuals. But actually, when you look at the SDGs, it's it's very clear to see that sustainability is about a better future. And so while you might not care or might, might not think you care about sustainability, I don't think there's anybody on the planet who's like, no, nah, I don't want a better future. So um, you know, when you think of it like that, when you think about you know, those there's, there's every decisions that you're making, how do those decisions create a better future for, you know, the people who you're buying from or the, the people who are um, going to get the job or um, the people who you're working with every single day. I think that's a really empowering perspective um, that it's very much within your hands. Um, so, I, yeah, I really sort of like to think of it like that. So, in terms of the construction industry, you know, so many different people go into making a building and whether that's, you know, designers, the way that, The way that you design profoundly shapes, obviously, the building that eventuates. And so uh, what you specify on it, how it's oriented, um, the the way that you take care of the traditional owners in terms of your design, like all of those things can impact um, in a really, really positive way, you know, and builders and contractors, the materials that you choose, the way you install it, how you employ your people, what kind of diversity you have in your workforce. There are so many ways in which you can act. Um, and then sometimes I guess that can be quite overwhelming as well for people that there is, you know, you can, you can never just be done with sustainability. There's <laughs> always a way to do better. But I choose to take it as quite exciting and it also um, offers you lots of opportunities to do something that you care about and whether that is around, you know, gender diversity like you or thinking about, um, you know, how do, we, how do we protect Australia's biodiversity or how do we um, enable people of different abilities to work in the workforce or how do we, you know, how, how do we support our people and our planet? You can do it in so many ways. And I think that's quite empowering and exciting rather than, um, than too daunting. <laughs> Absolutely. The Living Future Institute
0: pioneered the Living Building Challenge, which has been called the most rigorous sustainability standard for the built environment in the world. Where does the Living Building Challenge fit into the Australian landscape of regulatory rating tools and standards? And what are your aspirations for the program? Mm.
1: So, yeah, the, as you say, the Living Building Challenge was started by the International Living Future Institute in Seattle. And it started from a profoundly different sort of perspective. When we were doing social, when I was doing my social ecology master's, um, we did this whole thing on transformative learning. And you sort of, so many things are labeled as transformative learning nowadays, but actually the idea of transformative learning is a, a framework that is completely different to what you had before you learned this. And I think the Living Building Challenge takes that approach as well. So a lot of sustainability tools in the built environment are about uh, getting incrementally better every single year. So trying to get less and less bad and making steps in the right direction, which completely understand why that is. And and I think that's a necessary approach in in lots of ways. But the Living Building Challenge flips that completely in its head and asks, you know, what does good look like? And starts from that position of good, and, and sort of unpicks every single step in terms of what's the next good stitch that you could make in, in sewing this fabric together so that you have a completely fantastic building at the end that every single thing has been thought of. Um, so it's a really, really different way of thinking of things. I think fundamentally it's a philosophy first and a building certification second. And so even though there are sort of standards and, and things that you need to achieve, At any one time, if you're not sure what to do, the best place to look is not necessarily a a book of standards. It's asking yourself, what does good look like in this situation? And so in the Australian context, there's obviously quite a lot of um, different standards and certifications. Certainly somebody coming into the Bolt environment as a new person last year, it was a a, sort of a quagmire of (laughs) learning, trying to figure out who does what and, and when and what does this mean? And it's, I'm still very much on that sort of learning pathway, but I see us all as an ecosystem. We all do quite different things. And I think it's important for us to articulate where it is that we, that we work and what do we do that's different. For us, we are on that leading edge of, of what's possible in terms of sustainability. If you were doing absolutely everything that you could in terms of taking a leadership position, what would that look like? So there's that kind of intellectual, you know, pushing it. You know, it's the moonshot of buildings, um, and at the same time, it's demonstrating that this is possible and that it's desirable. And so, while not every single living building, not every single building is going to be a living building, those living buildings create ripples of change because they exist and they show that it's possible and they show what pushing yourself looks like. That being said, I also think it's really important to collaborate with all the other standards that that are in Australia. Um, probably now more than ever. Um, one thing that I find about sustainability in terms of an excuse not to do it is it's too hard or it's too confusing. And so the more we can collaborate and articulate that we do work together, that it's not it's not a competition, that we do different things, and you need to figure out you know what do you want to achieve in order to choose the best one um, for what you what you need. Um, I think particularly right now, you know, we, we need leadership in, in the current context and us standing together collaboratively around, you know, sustainability is this and we're all working together to do it. I think that's a really strong leadership position. Absolutely. And I
0: really like that, that you've described it as a philosophy first and a certification tool second because otherwise, um, you know, it can feel like a tick the box exercise and this is really shifting that um, approach The Living Future Institute in August hosted the Oceana Biophilia Summit with the theme Prospect and Refuge. Held within a context of the global pandemic, what were some of the ideas emerging from this event that could help with the COVID recovery?
1: So Prospect and Refuge comes from a um, biophilic design pattern. Um, So biophilic design is, is the idea that you're designing with love of nature and love of the living things in mind. And you're designing essentially habitats for humans as opposed to one of our board members calls them human storage boxes. So basically we are animals. So how do you design in a way that is, um, it enables our physical, emotional, and psychological needs. And prospect and refuge is, is one of those. It's probably one of the more complex patterns um, because it is quite psychological rather than something like um, you know, thermal comfort, for example, which is obviously quite physical. So it's the idea that humans, um, it's the savannah hypothesis, essentially. We, we spent thousands of years evolving on the savannah, and it was really important to. Feel safe in order to look far, and uh, that is that was a physical concept first. So um, you, know, you need to be in a cave, and then an ideal cave would be one where you can see um, the approach to the cave, so that you knew, you know, what was coming towards you. Is it a is it a lion that's about to eat you? And As we sort of evolved, um, that became psychological as well and, and in fact, helped our brains um, develop. So when we managed to domesticate dogs, for example, they took away some of the brain space that we needed in terms of safety because they were on the lookout for us, and it actually enabled us to um, develop our prefrontal cortex quite significantly as well which then helps you know prefrontal cortex is essential for things like strategic thinking and long-term thinking so it, it it really impacted us in that way as well which i think is quite fascinating you can see it in our everyday choices as well so for example if you go into a restaurant the most popular tables are the tables where people have got you know they feel safe they're kind of either have their back to a wall or they're in a little you know little booth but they can see the rest of the restaurant You know, that's a really simple example, but it's one way that it plays out. Or houses, you know, a lot of houses have um, really big views or you're able to see as much as you can and it makes, it just helps us to feel safe, right? And so the reason we we chose that thing, um, it just felt so right right now, Um, both just on a short-term level of, gosh, the world feels quite scary and um, how do we, how do we enable ourselves to feel emotionally, psychologically and physically safe um, in order to plan for what is actually coming up next? Um, the next 10 years, as we know, is pretty critical, <laughs> pretty important. And so some careful planning needs to happen. Um, we are going to you know, inject a whole lot of money into the economy through a lot of stimulus measures. How do we do that in a way? You know, we're, we're essentially borrowing from future generations by doing that, that the country will be in deficit for a while. So... How do you put that into future generations as an investment? And for us, I guess, the the very clear pathway is looking at how do we create a living future or or a future that's certainly worth living um, through this kind of stimulus. And we wanted to take that moment to really feel safe, but also reimagine what's possible and what we want for the next 10 years so looking to the future then,
0: as a sustainability leader, you have the opportunity to help set the agenda for what we need to be focusing on in the development and construction industries. What are your main sustainability priorities for the next year and the next five years?
1: I mean, I think I think the very practical answer is do everything you can to decarbonize as quickly as possible. So from a very practical way, um, we really would like to. Uh, think about embodied and operational carbon quite strongly. Um, living, building challenge, one part of it is very focused on that energy component, but you can also do you know, zero energy or zero carbon certification. So how do, you, how do you roll those out, particularly on volume? But I think um, for me, some of the, the bigger pieces are around um, how do we collaborate with as many people in the industry as possible to get things moving quickly? And how do you show leadership in this moment when it feels quite, um, quite scary and like there's a lot, there's a lot happening and a lot to process? But those, those people who are able to kind of grab the story and tell a positive story for what's possible, I think, um, I think that's how we, how we help win the day for the next kind of ten years. I suppose our role is also about. Um, demonstrating what is possible it's you know words of words are cheap and i think it's all very very easy to sprout you know amazing things that might happen but i think it's in the action piece that that we really play a role so in every single living building or in the way we operate as an organization how do you do that in a way that is good you know, how do you, you use every single action that you take to create the world that you want? Um, and that's small things as well as, you know, building spectacular buildings. We're able to demonstrate that it's not only possible, but that it's, it's beautiful and it's something that we want. Um, and it is that sort of better future piece that, that we all really want. Um, and so I think for us, the role is around inspiring and building capacity and showing what's possible in these next 10 years.
0: Great answer. <laughs> Touching again on the theme of female representation in environmental leadership, do you have any advice to those who are striving to make a difference in the field?
1: I say this piece of advice cautiously because um, it's a struggle for me and so uh, this is this is not going to be some magic wand that changes <laughs> your world. It's, it's a hard-won daily thing and that is, do it your own do it your own way um and although that maybe sounds like quite glib advice sort of like be yourself um it's not that it's very much uh, a choice to be the person you want to be um even though that is really hard and sucks sometimes because that's not necessarily the way that um the world may want you to be or the way that Know, your role is perceived or your role has been done by somebody else or what has previously been done for 25 years so I say this completely knowing that this is a struggle but I still I still think it's the way that we're gonna do something different um you know behaving the same or in, a, in an expected way has gotten us to the place that we are right now and getting us somewhere different is going to take something different and I think that's one of the key pieces
0: yeah great advice don't squeeze yourself into the same box that's got us here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Finally, I'd like to end on a question about inspiration. If you could name one thing that has been instrumental in shaping the kind of leader you are today, it could be a book, a place, a person, an idea or an experience, what would that be?
1: Ooh, I had a good long think about this because um, I have a great many sort of heroes and books and things that I love um, And I think it kept coming back to, uh, there's an idea in in, um, wines around terroir and that the ground that grows you fundamentally shapes who you are. And for me, um, getting emotional. (laughs) For me, that's that's South Africa. And I grew up, um, I was sort of coming of age or at least, you know, going through puberty right at the same time that, South Africa was transitioning from apartheid, a profoundly horrific system, to a democratic society. Not going to pretend that was an easy change or that, you know, it was all sunshine and rainbows. But, um, you know, I saw Nelson Mandela become the president. And for me, that's shaped me in a number of ways. Probably the biggest one is that change can happen and it can happen really quickly as well. Um, the other piece of it that I think was, was incredible was straight after um, the election, we did something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was a process that was run by um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and it was about truth telling and admitting to the, you know the horrific crimes that had happened. Uh, and I loved that idea of restorative justice and, and doing, doing things differently in order to heal. Um, And how forgiveness and truth can change, um, can really change the direction of a country. And so living through all of that, and particularly as a, you know, as a, as a child and then becoming a teenager, um, that, that is absolutely in my DNA and, and shapes the way that I look at the world Mm.
0: Laura, thank you so much for joining me today and for being so generous with your time and for your beautiful reflections. That was such an interesting and inspiring discussion. Thank you. Thank
1: you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to reflect on all of this. It was really a delight.
0: Design Conscious is a podcast created by me, Sarah Lawler, as part of the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship, supported by NARWIC.